0: All right, soccer freaks, this is ATL on Fire, the podcast where we're going to be talking all things Atlanta United Football Club. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy. It a little bit about the game on Saturday. What's got me fired up, and um, it was pretty easy to get fired up because as I was relaxing with no kids, it was supposed to be an awesome Saturday of soccer. I was really excited about just kind of going in the basement and turning on the TV, and come to find the broadcast is on Univision, and I've got YouTube TV, and uh, lo and behold, I don't have Univision on YouTube TV, so. I go to my fail safe. I'm like, all right, I'll sign up for Fubo TV, which usually has pretty much every soccer game, uh, on the planet. And I found the Spanish pack was like $29 a month. I'm like, all right, well I'll get some ROI on that. Even if I watch this game and maybe a few more. So I signed up for that and, um, you know, ready for the game, tune in a little bit before three 30. It just kind of the kickoff kind of lingered, uh, I don't know if the kickoff was supposed to actually happen at 3:30, but was just ready for the game to start. Never did. And Around 3:45, 3:50, I think they finally kicked off. And of course, Fubo TV starts buffering on me, and uh, you know, just really frustrating. Uh, you know, just trying to relax and the game isn't isn't playing well. Finally, it goes for a little bit. And then, of course, Orlando scores on us in, like, I don't know, the seventh or tenth, tenth minute, something like that, with uh, a corner kick and a header where somebody came crashing through the box and, and put it in between Guzan's uh, legs. Um, certainly a save he should have probably made, but, um, you know, a tough one because of the momentum of the, the header. But uh, Guzan usually does better. Anyway, I take a, a quick deep breath to say, okay, we'll see where this goes from here. And then the buffering begins to get worse. And the next thing you know, I've got a signal on my TV that says we're having broadcast problems, and uh, it just was like, "Oh, really? Come on!" And then so I I have
1: to say, Mikey Dobbs, that uh, our dear podcast listeners, Mikey Dobbs, convinced me uh, to get YouTube TV as well, so you can see where I got left out with is nothing. So it was a total wipeout. That
0: I did guide you wrong there, but, so, I'm watching on, on Fubo, Fubo goes Fubar on me, but it really wasn't Fubo TV, it was actually the broadcast, evidently, at and and even if uh, YouTube TV had the broadcast, Dave, it wouldn't have worked for you, um, it, it pretty much was shut down until halftime, and so I'm checking on my phone, and it sounds like they scored again on us, uh, at some point, it was 2 nothing, and so I don't really know what's going on, just trying to relax and, and have a beer, And I think the game came on around halftime or something like that. And it seemed like we started to play a little bit better, but really not until the 60th minute when they finally put on Barco. And I think um, uh, Jurgen Daum was already on the field. uh, He may have been subbed on at the same time. Kubo um, came on and um, yeah, but it was a little too late and you know, the, the other thing is, like, you know, finally when we did get a decent goal off the Jurgen Dom cross, uh, P.T., for some inexplicable reason, was in the backfield being uh, irresponsible with protecting the ball and just coughed it up. And, you know, even when, though we may have had a chance to, you know, stay undefeated against Orlando, uh, we got our first loss to Orlando, which just sucked. So... Uh, overall, just a really poor game, uh, again, unmotivating, but more than anything, it was just a frustrating day of, of what I was hoping to be a relaxing soccer day. Dave, since you didn't maybe get to watch the game, what, what were your thoughts?
1: <laughs> maybe the soccer gods were trying to tell you something, Mikey Dobbs. When, uh, when it started buffering, you may have, uh, you just failed to take the hint.
0: It's so true. I should have just gone and yeah, I should have just gone to relax with no kids somewhere. I don't know.
1: Should have gone to the spa or something.
0: <laughs> so, Dave, um, I cracked open a bottle of wine myself here, but do uh, you have any any beverage you're drinking this evening?
1: Yep, I'm drinking a uh, Rodney Strong Cabernet Sauvignon from California. It's very nice.
0: Nice. I've got a Italian Palazzo del Torre, I guess. It's an uh, Italian wine that's a uh, medium blend, kind of intense, but uh, it's good.
1: And this might be a good time to introduce our guest. Uh, Jeff Newberry, who is a very long-time youth soccer coach and the former director of coaching at uh, Ddy Soccer, and if I had to guess, is probably drinking a coffee.
2: <laughs> that is correct. I am rocking the Folgers 2020, um, gearing up for my my team's 10 o'clock fantasy draft for some reason. So. <laughs> That's fantasy football for everyone out there. But thank you guys for having me. Yeah,
0: Yeah, thanks for joining, Jeff. And Jeff and I um, have known each other probably, I don't know, maybe since middle school, Jeff. But, you know, certainly, um, you know, through grade school and high school, played soccer together in high school and uh, cross paths years later in the ADASL. And um, we're just talking about some tournaments like in Charleston that we played in. So uh, great to have a fellow Hornet on the uh, on the show.
2: Yeah, you gotta let the big bee sting. That's
0: right, man. So, Jeff, uh, just to to learn a little bit more about about you and and soccer, uh, can you talk to the guests about your history with soccer, why you love the sport, how you got into it from a young age, and um, you know, how it's influenced your life? And and particularly when Atlanta United got a team, you know, three years ago, how did you become a fan of Atlanta United, and what does it mean that we've got an MLS club?
2: Yeah. I mean, um, as far as my history with the game, I'm pretty much like a lot of other people grow up in the youth system um, here in Georgia. Um, like you said, I went to Roswell High School, you know, spent a little bit of time overseas later on in life and then um, have been coaching now. I'm going to date myself. It's probably going to date everybody on this call for um, entering my 29th year of youth coaching. and uh, That's awesome, man. Yeah, I started actually coaching at 14 years old, my club coach at the time actually kind of asked me if I'd work with him on his other team as a trainer. So uh, I actually think that, that was that moment I started to realize that uh, I was probably a better coach than a player. So, of course, stubbornly, I didn't find that out till much longer in life. But um,
0: you don't don't kid yourself. You're a good player, too, man.
2: Yeah, but... I sat behind you for a year, if you remember. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for your audience, just so you know, uh, Mike actually is a year older than me, but uh, actually took. You know, it took a lot of care for me when I was young, and tried to get me to do the right things.
0: Hopefully, I wasn't a, too much of an ass. I don't, you know. Nah, That's a long a time ago.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had, I was very fortunate to have a lot of people when I was young. Uh, you know, like Mike, and there's another guy named Chad. We both know that really yeah. looked after me. Maybe do.
0: The isn't, right it, thing. isn't it incredible though? Like some of the soccer yeah. talent that that we grew up with. Like, I mean, I feel like I was on the very low end of the spectrum, and you know, particularly if we had had some uh, some, some better coaching at different levels. I think there was, I certainly had some uh-huh. good coaches at different, uh, points. Uh, Guerrero was a great coach, um, mm-hmm. you know, growing up, but it was few and far between that I think, uh, and we'll talk a, bit, a little bit more about yeah. that in the podcast, but keep, keep going.
2: Yeah, no, um, just really started to really realize that I actually, um, after my playing days kind of fell out of, fell out of love with the game to be honest with you. Um, hmm. you know, I, I still to the day don't really watch, I watch the and I didn't know I'll touch on that in a second, but I don't watch a lot of soccer. Um, I realized how much I actually love coaching and loved, you know, watching the young players develop and sort of committed myself to, to sort of following that line. Um, because I think that's where, you know, we start. And obviously you mentioned, we'll talk about that a little bit more in detail, but I, I think from a simple thing, why I love the game is, is it, you can't cheat it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's no, there's, there's no running and hiding out there. Um. You know, and when I found out Atlanta United got a team, I was obviously like everyone else, I man, I was stoked. You know, not just for the city, but um especially for the city mainly, because this is a we, we tend to we tend to forget this is a hotbed of youth soccer. Georgia's top five state. Yeah. We produce an enormous amount of talent here. This is a, a very diverse city, and it's a city capable <clears throat> of really, really being supportive of it, which we've seen. Yeah. You know, we've seen what Atlanta United's done and um and I think they're as an organization, uh, I think we may be frustrated with wins and losses and decisions with players, but let's be very candid. This is a world-class organization unlike any other in the MLS um, by a landslide, I think. Yeah. Um, You know, and that's tough sometimes because they make decisions that are cold, you know, but that's, that's what they do. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can't agree more in terms of uh, you know, the, the influence that having a team has on the youth is, is really yes. important. And I, you know, the first game I went to at Bobby Dodd, I think just going into the stadium and seeing all the young kids that really kind of clicked with me, just seeing people with their family and their young kids, how much it actually meant to have a, a pro soccer team there.
2: Yeah, and I think uh, I hope you know, hope your audience and you guys know how much Atlanta United actually before they launched, like before they officially, you know, before Bobby Dodd, before the Benz, before Miguel, they were in the community, really kind of engaging all of the youth soccer leaders, um, and they were trying to really. It was a very, very needed perspective, um, and they came in, and they. There was a sense that at the youth level they would be competition, but they really squashed that, and. Um, you know now they there's elaborate partnerships with clubs where there's uh, the they are really getting the feeders you know the youth clubs are now feeding them and it, there's a badge of honor associated with it and I think that's fantastic that's the way you come in they came in first class and um and I think that's a testament to Carlos and Darren Hills and and a lot of the so what
1: was there. your your interaction being you know a prominent member of the uh, atlanta youth soccer scene what was your interaction with the club during those early days before the the professional product was on the field like did they reach out to you did you have conversations?
2: uh they did um you know at the time if you remember dave i was on my my first retirement um <laughs> been trying to walk away from this for a long time but uh um, keeps pulling me back in and so they re-engaged me at the club level they spoke with the, my replacement um and then they re-engaged me and i actually had the chance to sit down with carlos two or three times um and just talked about youth soccer in, in georgia talked about the players i've seen talked about some of the players i coached and what we were think what they were thinking what we were thinking as a club um and really what they could do, that was the, Carlos is one of the truly genuine great people. I mean, just my interactions with him have been fantastic. He's a, he's a professional across the board in everything he does. And um, the way he really kind of, uh, he talked about players was that holistic approach that, well, if it's right for us, it's right for them, it's right. But if it's not right for them, even if it's right for us, we're still going to make that decision for them, which I thought was a very positive approach. Um, so, you know, obviously, we spent a lot of time talking about it, one player in particular, um, one of their initial homegrown signings. And um,
1: did you have any advice for them? You know, just in general. I mean, not with regard to the single player, but overall.
2: Yeah, I mean, my, my advice to them was that, you know, listen, youth soccer anywhere you go, and Georgia's no different, is it's a snake pit, you know, we're all competing yeah. with each other, you know, the right. behind the scenes, we're all very friendly with each other, there's a great deal of respect amongst all the club leaders and coaches, but they're never going to say that to a person, right? <laughs> you know, it's all behind the scenes, you know, yeah. um, and I told him that I said, don't, don't, don't get involved in that. I said, be independent, be a little bit different. And, and they brought in Tony Annan and Tony's a a tremendous coach, tremendous uh, leader, right? And Tony understood that as well. So at the youth level, it was just staying out of the the politics of it, right? Not taking a side and and they've done a fantastic job.
0: And so far our listeners is, is is Tony Annan, if I'm not mistaken, he's the ATL United 2 coach now that Steven Glass is the interim coach of the, the main team, right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. He, he's, I don't, I think he still runs the academy side for the youth. Um, I think he's probably doing double duty, but yeah, he's, he, and he's the right guy to step into that role. Um, Obviously he knows the players. He knows, you know, they work closely. The academy and I think A2 are working very closely together. So Uh, he's a, yeah. And it's a, you know, the academy program sort of, uh, and you, well, you see it, right. You see the, the young players are getting a lot of opportunities there. So I think that's what A2s for, you know, its purpose is.
0: So how does the academy – pro how do the academy programs work that funnel into Atlanta United 2s and, and the program?
2: So it's a little bit – it's kind of an interesting question because COVID kind of blew up a lot. Uh, youth soccer, uh, not just in Georgia, but especially in Georgia because we were – it was coming here. It's been – um it's been a when we were growing up there was i don't know maybe 30 40 clubs that's ballooned to in some cases 300 right yeah um we're all on top of each other uh-huh. so it sort of ballooned up and then you had this tier structure that was ever changing which is still is changing um and uh each of the MLS's uh the MLS you know professional sides had a, a, an academy team you know so when we refer to academy when we talk about the MLS we're talking about developmental academy and that is, um, that is governed by the U.S. Soccer Federation. And there's probably, there was, excuse me, around a hundred such clubs are across the nation and they sort of play each other. And that was the high pyramid on the boy side. That's since gone away. Um, part of that was COVID. Part of that was, you know, there depends on who you ask. Part of it was U.S. soccer prepping for a lawsuit they were involved in. That's one theory. The reality is I think it was more of a cost thing. It just wasn't cost effective. So each MLS Academy is now sort of out there on their own. And, you know, every state's gonna be different. So California, they probably play each other. Atlanta United being the the MLS program in the Southeast. Um, you know, I think it's still figuring out how, how their academy teams, you know, U12, all the way up to U19 are gonna be participating and what leagues are gonna participate in. Some of them are in ECNL, which is a, Um, a a nationwide league some of them they form their own league so there's there's a lot in flux right now covid certainly kicked that into high gear um so how it works um with them independently is still in the air but um what's going on is a lot of the the youth clubs in this area um are all sort of participating in and feeding them players and they'll come out and recruit and um you know they'll 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 ask the coaches flat out do you have anybody that we should take a look at and if you say yes there you can send that play over on a on a monday night you know there's yeah. no holding back there's no rules that prevent it um and you know as a coach you know that is your goal as a youth coach is to is to get those players to Atlanta united um you know so uh, or are they reaching
1: yeah. out to just the top clubs or are they reaching out to all 300 clubs like how how does it work
2: yeah i mean it's it's difficult and. Um, you know, I think the answer to that is, is they're probably, um, taking a lot. They probably have people out there that are really, you know, I'm listen, you call a big club that, you know, they, they talk regularly, right. You know, we have about five or six, what I would say, really large clubs in Georgia. And, uh, they're talking, you know, the Atlanta United folks are talking to those clubs on a regular basis. Now, little clubs, some of the clubs in Savannah, you know, there's, there's some reaching out that's probably going on on their behalf. Um, so, you know, I think, um, that's a it's a challenge for Atlanta United um, to cover the geography of the state of Georgia. Right? That's not it's not an easy thing. I mean, yeah. obviously, it's a small <laughs> example of a larger issue. But um,
0: as you're talking, yeah, as you're talking about those, it is interesting though that you know when you and I were growing up, right? Like the holy grail was to play college soccer, basically, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. now there's a different path. So how do you, you know now that you're coaching? what do you see from kids in terms of like what they're talking about in terms of college soccer and the path to, you know, play for one of these USL teams or, um, you know, ultimately, you know, MLS or beyond.
2: Yeah. And I think it's funny because that conversation has shifted within the last two years. Um, the existence of Atlanta too, which is, I think is a, a very, very monumental movement for Atlanta. Um, there's not just the city, but the Atlanta United as an organization and U.S. soccer, obviously. But let's say, you know, three years ago, um, four years ago, I guess we can go a little bit further, playing for, jumping from a, a, a youth academy team to um, an MLS program, it existed and it was there. I, I actually was involved in a lot of those discussions with a player I coached, and that required that player to move whether it was to Arizona uh, or to Philadelphia or to Dallas. Um, that conversation has changed now. Those players here don't have to leave, that's one. Um, the second part is, is that now with Atlanta too, the USL is a viable option. So a kid can choose, you know, if you're coming up through Atlanta United or you're coming up through a private club, you know, you can go and try out for the USL side. Um, you can go to college. And in some, depending on the player, that that decision could be different, you know? You know if you're offered a contract with A2 or even a homegrown, you know, some of the comp, some of the questions you need to ask yourself is how quickly are you gonna get on the field with either, right? Okay. And is college the right path? Um, because, you know, you can get to, you know, Julian Gressel and Miguel Almarin had two different ways to the MLS, but they both arrived at the same time. You yeah, know, very one very went good. four years of college and the other went, uh, you know, Miguel's way. So, you know, I think it opens up the opportunities um, and for Atlanta United specifically as an MLS side, um, it's a huge advantage. It's an advantage they did not have when they signed those initial homegrowns, okay. you know, they didn't have the opportunity to see those players, um, in a professional environment against professional players over an extended period of time. And I think they would be honest and tell you that. Um, I think when I look at it, uh, you know, no one, I think there's a lot of conversations about the success or failure of the homegrowns. Um, I think context is key, you know?
1: can you explain to the the listeners who might not know what exactly a homegrown is
2: yeah so I'm not an expert in this area um, but I can the gist of it is is that a homegrown player is one where the MLS there's some salary considerations and there's some there's some rights that they retain by signing a player um, okay. I think it's a positive for the club meaning there's a, a financial benefit to signing a homegrown I, if I I wouldn't quote me on this but I believe they' exempted from certain salary cap restrictions in the interim um when a player comes through their academy program for a extended period of time and i don't have the exact number um and they go off to college atlanta united still has some rights to that player if they enter the mls draft or they want to sign Mm. with an mls team yeah i say that because there's a player at wake forest right now who put on your radar his name was going to be talked about pretty soon here especially in atlanta he is uh um he is somebody that uh will be coming this way very shortly <laughs> i have a feeling what, do you, what's can, his name yeah, what's Kim his Michup? name uh Michupchol. he played for the he plays for wake forest now um he's in uh, he's a standout there a uh, fantastic player big six foot three a uh, central player lengthy talented um was also he was on the same da team but he just chose the path of going to college and it's been a great transition from him a very intelligent kid um So he's, uh, you know, I think he's in his senior year now. So we'll probably be hearing Atlanta United has some rights to him. I don't, I don't know the exact particulars, but he's a guy I, you know, I I always say you, you'd be surprised. He'll probably step on that field pretty soon. He's a good, he's a fantastic player.
1: So So tell us a little bit about the experience with Lagos for the, for the listeners, So Lagos Kunga came through the DDY system from a very young age. And Jeff was his coach, I think, all the way through. And he's now one of the homegrown players for Atlanta United, although he's currently on loan with uh, Phoenix in the USL. Yeah. So um,
2: obviously, yeah, Lagos, he played 10 years at DDY. Um, We were in a strange situation with him because – I won't go into his uh probably by far and away the most misunderstood player i've ever heard. i mean pretty much everything i hear about him is usually wrong exaggerated or incorrect um he is a a very very unique player and he um so he came up through the ddy system and then right before he was going to head off to a developmental academy it was announced that atlanta united was forming was you know was was coming here um and that they were going to have a youth academy So we sort of put the brakes on everything and we said, okay, um, there's no point in going from one and then moving the next season. Let's just wait it out. And he joined the first um, U19, U18, U19, whatever the age group they used, um, DA team. And they were very successful. That team included uh, George, I think George Bella was playing on it, Machope, the player Patrick. Andrew Carlton played up on that team. Um, Very, very talented team. I think they went pretty far in the DA. um playoffs i think george campbell appeared on there as a is a very very talented
1: i feel like player. they won the, the da that year uh, with andrew carlton's
2: did um the group oh, o- andrew o- H- H- did. okay so yeah so in in that kind of pool of players was all the initial homegrowns you saw um you know you know you saw george bellow you saw andrew carlton chris goslin patrick o'conno and lagos um and they were all signed to different reasons and the reason they were signed so i think if i remember correctly um it was uh, Chris and Andrew who were signed first. And the reason was because there were some rules about how long you could be in a DA to qualify for homegrown status and things of the sort. And then the next three were George, Patrick and Lagos. And they were the ones announced out of Bobby Dodd that day. Um, interesting with all, with all those five players, um, I think what, what I look at is Atlanta United, how much they've matured as an organization because of those five players. Those five players were at a severe disadvantage to everyone else. And Atlanta United was as well. You know, I, th- I just using Lagos as an example, and I actually jotted down the dates earlier just because I want to remind myself. He played his last DA game in 2017, went off and played in the, in the U-20 World Cup, played four games in, I think it was London. Then he sat for almost nine months. Wow. Not a single game in between there because Atlanta 2 did not exist at the time. So he went from, you know, he, he just trained for an entire year. So then and that and that I think, you know, I look at it and I it's something I shook my head about and I think um, I was really disappointed with the, the lack there. But there, what options were there? You know, he, he got loaned out for Charleston for a game, but there really wasn't much. And then Atlanta, Two comes in and now you get to see Atlanta United can really bring those hung, those young generation kids up to the up to the and see them in that environment. Yeah. And you're seeing it, you know, we see another DDY player, a former DDY player now, Caleb Wiley is doing great. And, and Jackson Conway is doing great. And, um, Josh Wolfson's doing great. You know, it's sort of, so Atlanta United is really, um, matured as a organization with Atlanta too. And now their youth players can get a lot of exposure. I just, you know, it's something, um, and so Lagos obviously, you know, was training with the first team in the USL team and, um, then he moved to you know uh, i think it was what, 2019 they loaned him out to memphis candidly that was a horrible experience um you know memphis didn't have much of an identity there was as tim howard's group you know they're they're coming up they're still learning they they played on a baseball field um you know uh, <laughs> so um so lagos came back and uh, uh you know if you want to look at the timing of it, when Joseph went down, Lagos got loaned. So Lagos was loaned out to Phoenix, which is a great, great opportunity, but a very tough one for Lagos because that's a team that's uh, very similar to Atlanta United. They're in win now mode. Yeah. And, and 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 to
0: your point, like, you know, these players all develop at a different timeline and Mm -hmm. minutes are what's so key. And so they've got to be at a club or a position where they're getting some form of minutes to get those, that experience um and, and so yeah, we are talking about that lag with lagos before atlanta united too um you know those are those are tough uh on a player that you know particularly during a period that uh th- those are crucial months for them to be developing with experience right so uh, yes. it's interesting
1: yeah and i you so know how I, I, much yeah. how much say does lagos have over the loans that he's been on no does he get any say no
2: Okay. no and I mean I think um you know I think there's you know I'm going to take a 10,000 foot kind of armchair fantasy quarterback here um I think one of the things that I've been a little bit frustrated with is, is those of you I don't know a lot of people haven't seen Lagos play
0: yeah um, I don't even really what position does he play
2: good question that's what I was going to get to he is a forward he is not a midfielder he's not a defender he is a forward he is a different type of forward um he is not um adam john he is not um thank god you know he's not uh he's not joseph you know joseph they're all different types that these are you know and this is kind of what i always say and i said this is gonna be the most critical i have been is is jurgen klinsman tata martino and tab ramos all sauce the same thing in Lagos? he's a forward
0: well here's the thing i haven't seen (laughs) i I haven't seen uh Lagos play forward any day of the week, I'll take him over Adam John, though. I, I'm just not a – he is a cone on the field right now. At least the way we're using him and in the system we're in, it's just not working, and Dave knows I'm upset about that. But, yeah, I'm curious. What What do you think he would do with the minutes that Adam John's had so far in this team, which have been completely useless in my opinion?
2: I, I think it would be – I think what Lagos brings to the table once you sort of step back and look at um his skill set, that if he's 25 yards – uh, from goal, you know, the same fear that McGee put in people when he was running at you, Lagos putting you. Yeah. I mean, he's a scary dude, 25 yards out from goal. And the problem is, is when he's receiving the ball, 65 yards from goal, it, you know, uh, he may make the run. He may not. Um, but I think if you look at it differently, Atlanta United, is very similar to the Phoenix team that he plays on. Now, they want to whip those balls in and let the big guy go finish it. And while you're taking you, so you look at Adam John and you say, well, you know, Joseph Martinez does that. Well, let me, let me, you know, just my, my take on Joseph Martinez. He's probably one of the most gifted uh, finishing runners in the world. Yeah. He sees, he sees angles. He sees lines. He understands where the ball is going to be comparing him to, yeah. I mean, you saw it with Ken Juan Jones when we originally had the first, the first you put him in, you, you think he's going to same result? No, there's a, there's a difference to what Joseph does. And it's, it's all about the runs he makes. And, um, so I think when you introducing Lagos in there, I, I don't know how he would fare, but I think he would present a completely unique look. Um, and he's, but you have to embrace that, that that's what he is. Well, I, I will
0: yeah, take what yeah. you've described any day of the week, which is somebody who's running at somebody and trying to attack the goal, which, uh, I haven't seen from anybody in the substitute position of Joseph Martinez. Uh, I mean, I'm hopeful Adam or, uh, Eric. Kubo Torres will be able to do some of that, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really uh, not happy with what I'm seeing in the number nine position since Joseph is gone. I think they, they should have gotten more creative early on that. And I think they should have gone to the youth booth to, to make that happen. So that's just my opinion. So,
1: so so Mikey Dobbs and I look at Adam John and we say, look, you know, I mean his movement, is non-existent like he's literally a cone until you get into the box and then maybe when he's in the box if you're pumping balls in he can go fight and battle with someone so as you as a coach coaching you know lagos right you know i i you know i said on a previous podcast that adam john to me is the representative of bad american coaching right he's big he's got some talent he can get in the box but it seems like nobody's ever told him to move right and He doesn't know how to take up good spaces. He doesn't know how to make runs. He's literally useless until we get into the penalty area. So for you coaching a guy like Lagos, you know, and you were talking about 25 yards from goal, but you know, as the play is building, as he's a forward, how did you teach him, you know, to do more, to move, to to help the team?
2: So he was gifted in that area. I mean, Lagos is very, he's very cerebral with his game. He understands. Um, he understands the moment as well as anybody. Um, so Lagos would tuck in a lot, um, depending on the game. He understood when it was time to sort of pull back, but, you know, being fair to Lagos, he, he, his team that he was on his club side, his youth side, he had, we had weapons all over the field. So there were days when he could play very passive and sort of, um, not really engage himself too much. And then there were days when he would go into a different place. And, um, you know, I, I think, um, I don't know if he's ready for the the minutes at the, at, at the MLS level at this point. Um, but I think, you know, it's tough because we won't find that out until, until it happens. And I think I, I, candidly, I think he will be on the Ben's field soon. He just may be wearing a different Jersey.
0: You mentioned another player uh, was George Campbell and he's, Mm. Is he a left back or a a central central back? I mean, I was I was relatively um, happy with what I saw from the minutes. Um, I think it was earlier this year. He got some time on the field. Um, He certainly didn't lay an egg in terms of uh, what I saw. And, and, you know, with uh, LGP, as Dave knows on the show, who's a fantastic talent and athlete. Um, I was optimistic, at least with what I saw. But uh, tell me if you know anything about him.
2: So George, yeah, George is a bright young talent. Um, you know, he's a guy just like you know, just like a lot of these young players. He just needs minutes. Um, I actually initially, to be honest with you, when um, when uh, LGP moved on, I actually thought that was a, a move part in parcel to put George Campbell in. And I think George Campbell and Miles Robinson, you know, appear to be the future of your your center back line. Yeah, I'd love to see them in, but again, that goes back to that win win now mentality. Is that you know Atlanta United is not going to go in a wing and a prayer. They're going to they're going to go in and find somebody to step in, and they're going to expect George to sort of beat that player out. And that player, obviously, we found out was Meza, right? Yeah. And who um, who I, who I, know, I so,
0: personally love. Yeah. I love Mesa. He's yeah. um, I think he brings so much experience to the team. He, we needed that Parkhurst type of presence on the field. In mm-hmm. um, my opinion, I just I've only seen a little bit of him. I mean, he's been here very long, but he just seems like a cool customer, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I haven't been very impressed with Meza, to really? be honest. I, I feel like, you know, he's you know, a little bit older, doesn't have quite the quickness, which is fine for, you know, a cerebral player. But I haven't been that impressed with his reading of the game. I feel like he's been, you know, I mean, a, an example of this is in the first MLS back game when we turned the ball over and he was the only guy in the center of the back. And, and he didn't have a clue that the guy um, made a run straight through the middle and they found him for basically a breakaway and for a guy who's you know 29 30 years old whatever he is who's played in Mexico for years the fact that he never looked around to recognize that run that wasn't his guy but you know you got to recognize that and read it and and, and make yeah. that play
0: but i think you just called it out i think you know that's partially the problem of atlanta united being exposed is you pointed out it's not his guy and and maybe he should have figured something out given his experience but i've seen that too much with atlanta united where there's just not the right shape to where that shouldn't be the situation where um we don't have have somebody covering back um and that is one critique i have on george bellow from what i've watched he seems threatening going forward um but it's even, I don't know how to explain it. When I watch him and the play is developing and we don't have it, it's about a one-second decision where I see him kind of flat-footed and it's one second too late for him to get back. Even though he's hustling back or whatever, it's that one-second delay of him reading the game from a defensive standpoint that uh, I think George Bello has a lot of room to grow.
1: And I'm going to add something to that and throw it back to Jeff, which is... So Atlanta United 2 has, has had Bello, they've had Campbell, they've had Goslin. You know, these are you know youth national team players. They are homegrown players. These are supposed to be the future. Um, they're seem to me, you know, quite good on the ball, quite good going forward and yet and I haven't watched Atlanta United 2 play very much, but they just give up goals after goals after goals. Their record is pretty awful. And so my question is, you know, why can't those guys read the game? Why can't they defend?
2: Well, so context is key here, right? Um, yeah. If you look across the USL with the MLS sides, um, so it's mm-hmm. low Dose, you know, obviously LA Galaxy 2 and some of the other ones, what the MLS sides are doing is you, you'll you find usually the MLS sides at the bottom of the tables. And, the, and they're all doing the same thing as they're trotting out. So you're trotting out academy kids versus in what in some cases are seasoned professionals. You know, there's... Mm-hmm. The USL, for example, Romario Williams is a great player, you know, we all familiar with him, but Romario's in the USL. So can you imagine a, you know, a 16-year-old kid like George Bello making a first appearance in the sense George probably a bad example because he's been playing first team minutes. But think about these young kids coming into that USL environment and their first exposure is going up against Romario Williams, who's played in World Cup qualifying games, who's played in the MLS. You know, I mean, these are they're, you know, 28-year-old guys with, you know, 100, 200 appearances in the MLS running up against these what are basically high school kids right so you know i think that's what the mls sides are doing now that so they're they're really treating it as a developmental um environment as
1: opposed to doesn't that say that if those guys can't stop a Romario williams or whatever that they're nowhere close to stepping into the full side you know
2: so the analogy i would use is is that you know if you make your decision on let's say you we all go out to you know truest field and we get into the batting cage and you know the three of us go three for 10, hitting 90 mile an hour fastballs. So that mean we're ready to get one on the, on the mound? No. Right. I mean, it's sort of, a, <laughs> no it, you know, it, it takes a lot of time for those kids to develop. And and I think Mikey touched on it earlier. It's like, just, you know, we're talking about Meza and his, and and this kind of backline movement. It's, yeah. Think about these young kids trying to learn the game beyond going up against people who've been doing it for a decade at the professional level. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where, you know, you have to get the minutes. There's no, there's no training for that. There's no standing in the batting cage swinging at them, right. You're going to have to get out there when the crowd is yelling and when people are are moving and you're playing against guys um, who know what they're doing.
0: So bringing it back to Atlanta United, you know, I feel like our, our back line, and I think Dave agreed on this, like we've got a lot of talent in our back line, uh, when, when we're healthy, right. I don't know that we have depth. We've got a little bit. Um, but you know, we've got Escobar when he's keeping a cool head, he's obviously good back there. We've got miles Robinson. Who's been excellent. Meza, a veteran, um, uh, walks. Who's okay. You know, I mean, he came from, uh, you know, a league one team in, in England, um, and struggle to get minutes there. So, I mean, just putting that in context, right. I mean, that, that is important to know, like, I mean, if we're going to lean on walks, like that's where he's, his pedigree is coming from. Um, I think that George Bello could be, uh, excellent. Cause he's such an athlete. If he was trained a l- little bit more defensively, I don't know, I man, he's certainly a, a, a winger, um, and, and I wouldn't want to restrain his attacking. But I don't know, what are your thoughts there about maybe George Bellow kind of shoring up more defensively? Like Lennon is more defensive-minded on the opposite side of the field, and Bellow seems to be, you know, pushing up more naturally just based on his strengths.
2: Yeah, I mean, my first instinct would be to sort of ask, you know, one thing is to ask Bella what his role is, like what yeah. what is he supposed to be doing? Because I could imagine what we're seeing is what Tata would reinforce. Yeah, um, I would imagine Stephen Glass is probably uh, probably trying to give the players much more freedom. Whether De Boer was asking that, I would find that hard to believe. So, I think part of it is you know what are what are we asking him to do as a player? You know, as a so. And I think they needed to find that, you know, it was very easy when Tata, we all knew what was going on. There wasn't any secret to what was happening, right? Um, With DeBoer, I I was a little bit confused on the role of the left back. So if our thought process is that we want them really attacking and stretching the width of the field, which I am a big fan of, well, then that's going to expose Meza and and Miles to a lot of pickup, right? And that should be expected. So um, one of the things I, I do wonder is, how critical we can be of them given their time together which is what seven games in a sense with a gap (laughs) the covid gap right right right. so you know it's sort of a not only that we're in the uh, we're in kind of a dead area with uh, the coaching area i mean steven is a placeholder i would imagine as nice a guy and as quality as he is i don't know if he's the guy right Yep. One of the things that surprised
1: me, you know, going back to that role, I would have said exactly the same. What is his role? You know, we talked about it on a previous podcast that um, Atlanta United will play, you know, um, Robinson will win the ball. He'll play it out wide to, you know, Lennon or something, whatever. And Bellows sprinting 40 yards up on the opposite side of the field, you know, and, and then he just stands there right? And we have no chance of using him there. Um, he doesn't necessarily keep going and make a run fully, whatever. He just ran 40 yards up the field, exposed us defensively, didn't help us one iota offensively. And then when we lose the ball, he runs back. You know, I described it as Mikey Dobbs to Mikey Dobbs last, I think last week in a podcast. Do some wind sprints. You might as well take <laughs> your left back and say, look, every time we go up the right side, I want you to step off the field and run wind sprints right? I don't really understand. I mean, obviously, he's being told to do that. I can't imagine that he would just run up the field for no reason. But I feel like there's no, you know, you said that there's a lot of, um, you know, giving the players some attacking freedom. But attacking freedom also means that they should have some thought process about when to go forward and not. And I'm all for him going forward. But going forward, when we're attacking down the right side, and you just sprint up 40 yards in order to sprint back 40 yards, I'm like, what was what was that for?
2: Well, I think you brought up an interesting point because, like, you know, when I watch the games, one of the things I notice with them is I do notice that I, I know exactly what they're trying to do, at least I think. I, I think they're trying to create that space in the middle to break that line because they're struggling with that. It's been a – since Darlington left, to be honest with you, I think it's been the most noticeable change with Atlanta United that they're not – that transition from that backline swinging possession – to breaking the line in the middle of the field to get into the final third, it's been very dodgy at best. You find that's why you find pity dropping into the arc each time to try to receive the ball, which is not where we want them doing it. So in theory, you would push these wingers high, but like you mentioned, when they turn over, we're we're wildly exposed. Well, you know, to me, I call that the lack of Darlington Nagby. You know, Darlington didn't turn the ball over, so you had that pulse of the team that kept it right, and you could break those lines a little quicker and. When I watch Atlanta United play, I actually think they should pull their possession back, right? Pull their possession back inside 10 feet above the the top of the box, right? So now George isn't, you know, the outside wings aren't 15 yards over midfield. Now they're 15 yards before midfield. Start your break there, open up more space, right? And that will create John, that will open it up for John. Because what Adam John is, is the guy that you want to whip the ball in, right? Well, you got the right guy. Brooks Lennon's the right guy for that. Um, he can, you know, he's a very good young player. Um, I watched him play. He was in the, he was on the same World Cup roster as Lagos. He's a great little player, but you're not going to get that if you can't break those lines. Right. And I think that's where I look at that, you know, as much as I love Lorenowitz, I love Rometty. Rometty is your hitter. He's not your distributor, right? That's the guy. Rometty cleans right. up the mess, right? Right. So you have to find that true kind of what I call the pulse of the team, the guy that keeps everybody. And that was Darlington. I mean honestly it was it's always
1: been Darlington. I could, I agree with you completely. I feel like so first of all without Remedy playing that holding role what I don't know what De was doing to him but um we couldn't win the ball back in their half, right? You know, at times when we got up the field, whenever we would lose the ball, we ended up coming all the way back. We, well, there not to say that we need a press or anything like that, but just just a, a presence to, to win the ball back or make it difficult for them to come up the field. We often had remedy in front of Nagvi even when he was here and it was really weird. Um, and then I also agree on the outside, look, you know, you can still be as aggressive going forward, but you don't need to be that, that 30 extra yards to midfield right away. You can be 20 yards back and then moving into it. Once we need you. Right. That way you're not exposing us so much, but you're still helping to break that line because you're running into that space. Yeah.
2: Uh, and candidly, I think that guy is actually Andrew Carlton. Yeah. I mean, he's young and he, he's going to take a few years for him to develop into that sort of pulse. But the guy, he's a gifted he's a gifted playmaker. He understands the pass, And I say the pass is being the most underrated thing. That's one thing Pitty does extremely well. Right. He can, he, he's, his passes on a mid range to long are spectacular, you know, and Andrew understands that. Um,
0: Yeah. I was going to say, I uh, I was going to say, I agree with you. I think Andrew, like from, from what I, there's a lot of things I'll knock on Andrew for as, as a lot of people do on social media, but mm -hmm. in terms of his talent and being able to knock the ball around, like it's, it's pretty impressive. Like at his age, he is a true talent. Um, But in terms of like the playmaker, right now for atlanta united that i just feel like we're missing is barco on the field um to to me i mean he's he's a completely different player than nagby but he's the heartbeat of the team and unfortunately pt martinez is feeling he's got to carry that role which he's clearly um not designed for i mean he you know you, you you see where his talents is and where it's just like misfiring almost even in the game against orlando i mean You know, at the last minute, like the shot he took that went off the crossbar, um, the two goals he had in the last game. I mean, he's got a lot of qualities, but what he doesn't is he doesn't have – he's not a number 10. I mean, I guess is what I'm saying. Like he's not – Barco can take control of the center of the field, move it around, uh, where I do think PT needs a a different type of role and how he's going to help support the attack going forward. I
1: think the thing that, that, yes. that Jeff was saying previously about Lagos, you know, twenty five yards from goal, he's he makes you you're really nervous. Yeah. Um Petey when he's in that advanced role, whether it be passing a ball or even running in a gap you know, running at a player makes you nervous, yeah, He does, but you know, 65 yards from goal, you know, and sometimes he's a little, maybe too adventurous. Yes. You know, we well, need the we, bridge. We
0: sure as hell saw that against the, you know, <laughs> yeah. against I, the Orlando team where he's way too adventurous on the opposite side of the field. And exactly. Barco has the quality in my opinion to be more of a box to box player than PT. Um, he, I think he's safer with the ball. He knows how to use his small, being a small person myself. Like he knows how to use his size to his advantage. And I think he's gotten better at that and understanding how the, the MLS, MLS refs ref getting fouled. Cause he does get dinged up a bit. Um, cause he's what, he's probably like five, five.
2: Um, yeah, he's not um, a big guy at all. <laughs> not, not,
0: a, not a big guy, but I think I've been impressed with him kind of adapting to the MLS refereeing and. And yeah, he's get, he gets fouled pretty good sometimes. Um, and yeah, sometimes he knows when to. I think he's learned how to um, fool the referee when it's right. And also sometimes he just gets fouled. Uh, I don't know. It's long winded, but.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like Pity as a player. He's, he's actually one of my favorites. But one of the things, the criticism of I would last is he pisses away more plays than I can match. Yeah. Where he just, you know, and, and there's, you know, moments of, of sheer brilliance. I think I. Candidly, I don't think he's Batman. I think he's Robin, mm-hmm. and I think without Batman, Robin's going to struggle. And yeah, you know, I think he's better when Joseph's on the field for the unknown reason is is that he doesn't have to. Yeah. Um, but a pity carrying a team, he's the wrong guy. He's not that. He's not that guy.
0: Correct. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, do we want to do trivia or do we want to do something more serious, Dave? In terms of. Uh, kind of the state of us soccer and i know jeff's time may be limited i want to be be (laughs) cognizant with your your time because really appreciate you being on the the podcast
1: no
2: it's been fun um
1: it doesn't matter jeff you want to do trivia i would like to talk to jeff about a little bit more about um youth soccer and the development of players um but it's up to you, Maggie Dobbs. We can do trivia first.
0: Yeah, no, I think we we hold off on trivia. And, and since Jeff has so much knowledge to bring to our lack of knowledge podcast, I think we, we take advantage <laughs> of it. Um, yeah, so I, I think, you know, I'd love to get your take kind of going back to where we started the podcast in terms of your passion in uh, coaching youth soccer, um, MLS being really core to – Uh, a a structure that can now trickle down into youth soccer in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about where you see the state of, of youth soccer and what we need to be as a, um, a nation to really compete at the highest level. Now that we've got a great league um, we obviously started it a little late in 1994. Um, Where, where do you see things from, from your lens with these young kids?
2: So I think, I think, the first thing is is that it's 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 moving in the right direction at a much better pace than probably most of us would imagine. I think taking a, the disappointment of not qualifying for the last World Cup aside, right? There was a number of factors that went into that outside of of everything else. I don't think that diminishes where we're at. I don't think it changes our our timetable. I think U.S. soccer is faced with three fundamental challenges that aren't going anywhere um the first is um and i was one of the great conversations i had with jürgen when he uh when i first got a chance to meet him was he spoke at lengths about the geography and that is a very very big big issue that we don't play we don't pay as much attention to that the united states is a massive geographical location and it's
1: unique to the united states like we really have other countries have to deal with it
2: yeah and then when you start to really peel back that onion, right? So, one of the things I was thinking about today was, well, okay, you know, is there a reason why players come from Florida, Texas, Georgia, and California? Well, yeah. Well, our, our weather dictates that we can play year-round, or we don't have a lot of the the issues, you know, with field space and some other things that other places do. Um, you know, use, use Minnesota, Wisconsin, places like up in the north where they may have what two hundred and fifty some odd three hundred soccer fields across the, across the state. Well, we all know that halfway through the year, that's going to get shut down. So those kids are playing indoors. I guarantee you, there's not three hundred some odd indoor facilities. So you know, there's some there's some issues there that are that are extend beyond just what we think. Um, then we also have to discussing the geography. We have to also understand that we have to be able to cover that from a, a player development standpoint, right? So there's three million. To put this into context, in the '70s, right, 1975-ish, right, there's 100,000 kids playing youth soccer in New America. Wrap your mind around that, right? There's three million plus now, and and they're actually pretty geographically even, right? There's the three or four regions in this country. They're actually pretty geographically even. So, this concept, we, you know, this one thing we always hear, and this these kind of silly concepts we talk about was, how does a nation of 350 million people you know, not win a world cup well okay then when did china and india win right it's beyond there's other issues going on right and we, we try to so so part of that and it kind of talks what i was talking about with the usl was we've got to find the infrastructure in the professional game to really provide consistent opportunities to young players to play at the professional level without sort of the end-all be-all at the MLS, right? You know, the MLS is is not, is the recipient of the development. They're not the stage of development, right? They are and they aren't, right? The, the, the Christian Pulisic of the world is as rare as little LeBron James, right? Let's be honest, right? The kids jumping from high school to the pros are rare in every sport across the thing. It's like not even a percentile. But the kid coming in at 24 and 25, the Miguel Almirons of the world, right? That's pretty common. So we want to make sure we're focusing on that and providing an avenue for kids at 18 that may not be ready for uh, you know the usl or mls right so what's yeah, next? I mean, look
1: at atlanta united and and robinson and gressel and um even parkhurst going back you know before that right these guys weren't you know 18 year old superstars mm-hmm. they they didn't come through the national system they they played in college they played you know wherever yeah. and then they came later yeah. So I think it, once you have the
2: professional, the inter, the interconnected professional infrastructure, that's the key we have right now, we have 150 professional teams in the United States, but they're not interconnected. They're, they're leagues. You probably don't even know exist. Right. So if you look at the English premier league, right. And using as a England as an example, right. You have a pyramid, right. They're all connected. There's a promotion relegation system. Now, while we're not there yet, right. You've got to have some interconnection and then you have to have the youth clubs around. Right. So in theory, You know, I I use the example of Major League Baseball with the way the Atlanta Braves are set up. It's a very similar – it's an existing model. It's an American model, and that's something we have to also discuss, right, is you have this the Atlanta Braves, and you have tiers underneath them where the players, you know, they can funnel. So look at what Atlanta United – or excuse me, the Atlanta Braves are doing. At any point in time, there are, what, uh, 300 probably players in their pipeline that they're constantly developing playing at different tiers giving a chance moving up and down that's fantastic right and then but that takes that takes me to my next point is we have to have patience right because we're not there yet right the mls is is growing as a league it's grown inc- you know exponentially in the last few years but the type of of financial you know investment you have to put into that structure isn't there yet right so but it's getting there and it's going to be I predict, I think, uh, you look at it right now, there's more kids playing youth soccer now than there are playing the league baseball.
0: So Jeff, Here. one of the things everyone talks about is promotion and relegation and why why can't that happen with MLS? And, and part of the reason is the way that MLS works, which is the ownership is one mm-hmm. I don't know, conglomerate. It's MLS, right? MLS owns every team and they own the license and the contract with every player. So it's a very different system in the US here in terms of our league but um and I guess that does translate down to the USL in in some teams but my hairbrain idea is if we were to start promotion and relegation what what is your thought of this is this is some an idea that I had why don't we start it with the USL down into the youth leagues below in each state um to to some degree like start it there and then try to figure out how the MLS rolls into that at some point in the, into the future. Do you think that that's uh, off base or do you think there's any concept to that?
2: I, I think there's more of a concept from the USL level from a, like a league one, league two, I think because the problem that you probably have is, is an, and I think that should be the ultimate goal is across the board promotion and relegation. The, the issue is, is that, I don't think as a infrastructure and as a nation with the infrastructure we have, it is feasible. So just using a simple, not right now. Yeah. Um, use the example of uh, Inner Miami right there, an expansion franchise. So they're going to build, you know, they're going to make a what, $200 million investment in a stadium and then drop down to the USL and play in high school stadiums it's not practical right you know that doesn't make sense well you could
1: imagine the same thing for atlanta united so year two we win the title and let's say we you know we fall further from Greg's and we end up you know in a relegation battle this year which with a interim manager and whatever is not unfathomable could you imagine if um we were relegated and you know what arthur brank and our team and the mercedes-benz would do what would we draw as a relegated team
2: yeah, I mean, and I'm not even really convinced. I, I like to Mike's what Mike said. I think it would work at the USL level. I don't think there's a really issue there, because um, I think the teams who are ready to make the jump, like Phoenix FC, is a Phoenix Rising, is a team where Lagos is that's that's going to make the jump to the MLS at some point. They're you know they're trying to get a franchise. It's all in the works now. So for them, it, it they're not gonna they're they're gonna have the investment where they're probably never gonna risk relegation, right? But I'm not even entirely convinced that we should have a relegation promotion. I think we we say that, and I, it kind of goes to my other point, is that we sort of, we have to get out of the uh, what England does or what, um, what every other country does, because we're, we're completely different cultures. And, you know, looking at, for example, just saying Liverpool, right? Well, they only have a 125-year head start on us. <laughs> so it's like, we have to kind of step back a little bit and say, come on, you know, I believe that the MLS will be the world's premier league in 20 years by a landslide. And I don't think it will be close, but it's not there yet. Um, Once the economics are there, once the, once MLS teams can stand on their own financially, right? Because remember they don't now they're all kind of, it's a giant pool, right? Um, Once I think they get to that point, uh, I think the floodgates are going to open and you won't be getting the messy at 38 years old. You'll get the messy at 17 years old.
1: Yeah, and
0: so Atlanta United has the youngest roster of any MLS team right now, um, and you know I like how, I like how they have continued to stay the course of focusing on young talent, whether that's homegrown or bringing in you know these South American players that are on the younger side of this the spectrum. Even if it's a PT Martinez who's what twenty six, um, it's it's not a retiree.
2: No, and that's, I wanted I think to that's talk cool. Yeah.
1: I wanted to talk a little bit about something we haven't talked about, which is even a step down, right? So we're talking about the Uh jump of the Lagos and development Academy to MLS. But so the players who, you know, literally from, you know, rec, you know, you know, three-year-old, five-year-old soccer going to 13, 14-year-old, whatever, when you say that they're serious. One of the things that concerns me is, is, how we are evaluating players um, and and how we are moving them along. I mean, one of the things about, you know, we compare our huge country to let's say, you know, Liverpool, right? So Liverpool, you know, is uh, uh, a small city and there's a couple of clubs there. And so, you know, Everton and Liverpool are fighting and whatever. They have a number of kids and and they are – invested in bringing them sort of all through because unlike you know Atlanta where we have 300 clubs <laughs> and they're all fighting and whatever um, where you can just cast off you know anybody who's not the biggest strongest fastest right you know they have to bring a lot more players along and one of the concerns I have is it's shocking to me how many clubs at the youth level have already written off so many players by the time you get to the U13 or U14 level. um, Do you, do you find that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I lived it. Um, You know, uh, Lagos was told me, you know, people told me all the time how um, Lagos can't make it here. Can't do this, can't do any of the things. Apparently he could never be anything in soccer because he, he trained with the YMCA club, right? Because the YMCA is the one who our insurance covers, right? (laughs) <laughs> like, like that was the deciding factor of the young man's development, which is just, you know, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of that. I mean, you know, I, I'll, it just to tie it to Atlanta United, because one of my frustrations, I think Tata Martino was is one of the world-class coaches. And, and let me tell you what he's really the best at. No one identifies talent like that, man. And he, I was so disappointed because I think we as a nation, I think in general, we, we write kids off way too soon. You know, we see they're not too big, they're not this or that. And I understand that, right? You know, there's a competitive side to what we do. And, you know, but there's also late bloomers. I mean, I think the MLS's all-time leading goal scorer was a late bloomer, Chris Wondolowski, I believe. Right. Is he still, you Yeah, know. he's
0: still playing. Yeah. Still I mean, sworn. these
2: are kids, yeah. It's like you know, there is no rhyme or reason to this, right? And we all wanna we all want to pretend there is, but there isn't, you know. Um, at the end of the day, these kids really control their own destiny. And what can happen to a kid? between, I mean, I remember, you know, my, I'm going to hold my quotes up, but my youth coach at 12 telling me I should play football because that was what I would be good at. You know, I mean, there's a lot of that that goes on, I think. um, But that's part and parcel with coaches. I think the evolution of coaches, you know, when we were growing up, I think there probably candidly was 12 to 15 elite level coaches in Georgia. I mean, being very honest. You know, Mikey mentioned earlier, a gentleman who we know is Guerrero. He was a parent, right? But he had a lot of equity in the game. He understood it. You're looking at that number now and you're, you know, there's probably a thousand elite level coaches in Georgia. And um, they're, you know, we all we all say every every coach will tell you that they're the best, right? But the reality of it is just, there's a lot of really, really great coaches. I see them every day. I'm, I'm always impressed with what I see out there and how far it's come. And I think the more you get those coaches kind of moving forward i think and the more we have of them the more that you're going to get those players that
1: aren't get cast aside for bigger stronger faster right yeah um, i'm going to disagree a little bit like i'm sometimes really disappointed we have these these great clubs with these tremendous players and sometimes we play against them and i'm like that's not a a well coached side like like i didn't see that they not just that they didn't play well as a team but that. I didn't feel like the kinds of things I heard from the coaches were were developing players or or or, or making them better. Um, it's I better than it was. Uh, okay, so it's better I, than it was. Yeah. yeah. I'll give you a great right.
2: example. Um, there's a gentleman I had a I had a good chance to meet him when I was in California a little bit. He runs a club called the Fullerton Rangers, right? Very successful club. Um, and uh, I don't know if he still does this, but he told me that he only has one team in every age group. Period boys girls that's it just one and his rationale was these this guy's won like multiple national championships at the youth level wildly successful professionals all over the place right and he says well i only have one elite level coach why would i form a team with a secondary coach i thought that was a very i mean this guy, this guy was flexing because this guy could have five six thousand players but no he's got you know a thousand but he says i know every one of those people is being coached by an expert but the funny thing, just See, to I disagree agree with you, that. Dave, yeah. yeah, but to disagree with it, the funny thing is, is that yeah. he can say that now because there's that many high-level coaches out there to pick from. Before, yeah. when we were growing up, that wasn't the case. I mean, I didn't oh, get sure. I didn't get my first real soccer coach till I was 14 years old, you know, and yeah. I'm, you know, professional in every way, you know, and, and Mike will probably tell you, you know, they just weren't there. Yeah,
0: I mean, our, our high school coach at Roswell was a Latin teacher. He had never seen – a soccer game in his life and he's trying to call timeouts literally his first couple of games yeah. he's doing like a time I, i'm not kidding like that was what was happening i
2: <laughs> i walked off the field i thought it was legit <laughs>
0: yeah i was like all right hey
2: <laughs> so i was like he high coached. school rules i didn't know right
1: yeah. <laughs> but out, uh yeah,
2: yeah but it's i think i mean
1: Great.
2: you know i i'm always impressed with it and i also think you know somebody like me who kind of uh, didn't really have coaching till later in life I look at it and I said to you the other day, you know, I look at how much better your son is going to be, or your daughter is going to be. How much more knowledgeable will it be? You know, I yeah. I use the analogy of my dad. You you watch a Falcons game and my dad, he's calling out blitz packages and where <laughs> the a gaps are, right? And that's just that's that's just typical household American knowledge, right? You know. Right. Well, that soccer is not that way, right? So, but now it's becoming that way. So, like. Yeah. You're sitting, you know. My, fr- I sometimes I sit in when I watch the landing. I sit in the stands and I hear this guy behind me screaming, "Switch it, switch it!" And I have no idea why he's doing that, right? But ten years from now, that guy won't be saying that. Right. That guy will be saying, "Yeah, because he's going to be
0: li- he's going to be listening to me uh, <laughs> in, in front of him." And, and yeah, because I've got my own opinions, as Dave knows in our section. I'm not quiet.
1: <laughs> well, so so your yeah. <laughs> point actually may just destroy my my other point, which is to say that um, you know the when you're talking about the limited number of really fantastic coaches, um, the the thing that, I, that, that strikes me is that we have so much competition. We have all these fantastic teams starting from such a young age, right? You know, mm-hmm. at the U12 level, we have, you know, national championships and we have Developmental Academy and we have, you know, ECNL. And one of the things that does is it puts a, um, to put a fine point on it, like it puts a competitive edge from such an early age and it forces clubs and coaches and, you know, to, to have a little bit of a win now mentality as opposed to, um, you know, developing, I almost, you know, at some level, I feel like if we could get rid of ODP and we could get rid of developmental Academy and get rid of all of that stuff until a little bit later, we would force people to develop players for longer. Now, that being said, I think you destroy that argument because you say, well, if the coaches aren't good enough, then maybe you're leaving them with a coach who's not so good for too long.
2: Well, it, yeah, and it's hard. I mean, I would say that, not to not to play devil's advocate, I would say it feels good to say what you said, right? It feels good to agree with it. Where I would go on the other side is I would say, But we're sending these kids, are we asking these kids, whether they're 14, 15, 16, 17, right? To walk into an environment where, if they're a professional, right? I mean, I'll be very honest, but this is gonna sound harsh when I say this, but when Lagos signed, when we were riding back from Arthur Blank's office, I looked him in the eye and I just said, listen, I want you to understand something. You're nothing more than a piece of meat to them. Remember that. And that's a hard thing for an 18 year old kid to hear. But we're sending these kids into these environments where they are going to be, they're looked at as a commodity, right? So I don't want to say that that justifies the way we act at the youth level at times with that overly competitive, but we need to instill in them that sort of dogfight. Because one of the things as a a country is that youth soccer tends to be a very affluent sport, right? Where... You know, trust me, the path that Joseph Martinez took to Atlanta United and and Lorenowitz took is vastly different, right? One was playing for food on his table. The other was playing for his, his father, right, or his mom, yeah. right?
0: And that tends to be the case with almost every U.S. sport, maybe basketball aside, um, the, the talent that comes through, uh, it's a pay-to-play kind of model. Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you look at it and you think of, I mean, can you imagine how competitive it is to be on the English national team or the Argentine national team and what those kids are going through at the youth level? It's, it's tough to, you know, it's its an interesting thing. It's, a, it's an answer I don't have, David. I mean, I know I agree. But, with, But
1: you soccer said. is such a, you know, there's certain sports um, that are a little bit more, in my opinion, raw athleticism, and maybe it's easier to have that competition, whatever soccer is a little bit more of a nuanced game. It's a game where, you know, a five foot whatever messy can be the best player in the world. Um and that there are players, you know, uh Angolo Conte, you know, who can read the game, can become the Premier League player of the year where he's a skinny little dude, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, and my feeling is what I'm worried about, so, you know, I, I don't know about the path of a guy like that, but um, Do you think N'Golo Conte would be the guy who's picked by the best young Atlanta clubs and uh, the best, you know, clubs in in youth soccer in Atlanta and would be, you know, candidate for a homegrown player? I
2: mean, it's hard to say, you know, I mean, I see somebody, somebody will always find him, right? You know, I mean, they found Lagos, you know, it wasn't hard, you know, Um, but – I think we need to be looking for those players, and it's sort of, um, you know, we need to take a lot of pride in finding them when we do, right? And I think that's a positive, but no, I don't know. I mean, one of the things I I get frustrated with with U.S. soccer is not that there's a lot of great people in U.S. soccer. They are, you know, all these people really care a lot about it, but I think one of the things they need to do is, and that's why I go back to Tata. That's why I was so angry that U.S. soccer didn't reach out to him because he's exactly what they need. Right. Okay. He is a guy that can and I'll tell a funny anecdote. Um
0: How did they not you know? reach out? How did they not reach out to him? At least just uh, okay, cuz according I, I to I don't even know. Yeah, according because to all incestuous. sources like they didn't even like call well, him.
2: Yeah.
1: Look, look, look. It's incestuous and I'm going to say that because you know, Burr was in the national team and was a friend and he was looked at hardly. And, and I would say this, this is not just true of the men's side. You know, I always talk about on the women's side, right? You have a guy like Paul Riley, who's the most successful club coach in America period. Right. And has continually been passed over for the women's national team coach, which boggles my mind. How do you have a guy who wins the championship every year at the club level? He's in the country and you're not going to make a national team offer. No, I don't know. Maybe they are. But it's, it's striking to me how at the national team level, you talked about how youth soccer can be this sort of hornet's nest and, you know, this this very, you know, who knows who and politically or whatever. It seems like at the national team level, it's that way.
2: Well, it's funny you said that. So let me give you a little antidote. You'll like, I'm sure your audience will appreciate this. I I met uh, Carlos for coffee and Buck at one time and we were chit-chatting. He was telling me about Tata, right? Because I asked him, you know, I said, tell me about this new coach, right? And he says, let me tell you, I, I went and met him in Argentina and I went to his house and I met him, you know, I sat down with him and he said, he walked me into his office and on the back of his office wall, you know, much like my fake Zoom picture behind me was binders, right? Binders, individual binders on hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of players in South America that he had that he had scouted. Right, he pulls four binders off the table, sets them down, and he says, "Sign these four players." He's like, "These two will make you rich," it was Carlos Carmona, Emil Assad, Miguel Almiron, and Joseph Martinez. And Carlos said that he had done so much research on all these players that it was just that he knew right then this was the guy. Right, this was the guy Atlanta United needed. And then, you know, because you can remember, yeah, yes, Miguel would have made it through, um, made it to the, would he made it to the EPL? I don't know, right? But he would have made it up through the international ranks, and he's done really well, but jo- Joseph, probably not. Um, you know, so you look at that, and I think about U.S. soccer, and what I desperately wish is for somebody to just take another look. Take a look at who's out there and say, is this the best 22 rosters, players we could are these kids the ones we want? Are these kids the ones we want? What are we looking at? Because, you know, and then, you know, I'm very disappointed after our, um, you know, I wasn't disappointed that we didn't qualify for the World Cup. I wasn't, I wasn't, right? But I was disappointed in how we responded afterwards, which was, let's trot those same folks out there and see what happens. Come on, flush it out. Let's start, let's get some new blood in there. And Tata would have been the perfect person to do it. He's a world-class evaluator, a talent, and it's exactly what we need. And I have no doubt that Mexico is going to go yeah. – as, be as well-prepared as anybody that's been in the world. Yeah,
1: I think Mexico is a contender to win it all. They have a sort of golden generation, and they have a coach who can really find the players and put them in the right spots. To succeed.
2: Yet he's also capped more – I think he's capped a lot of new players. I wonder what those yeah. new players are, right? You know. So, yeah, I mean – you know, but ultimately, U.S. soccer is just is going in the right direction. It's
1: just we have unique challenges and we need to. Well, be so, focused. how do you feel about the Atlanta United coaching search? Like, how should they be going about the, the new coaching search? Obviously, Tata yeah. was a phenomenal opportunity, he had an international reputation. He called he coached Barcelona, but um, he coached Argentina, but um, you know, and also was that kind of a coach who could evaluate all the players. But, how do you find one of the things that strikes me is, is you know, coaching-wise, you know, you say the coaching has gotten so much better in the U.S., right? Um, surely there's some American coaches who are good enough to warrant a shot, you know, at coaching an MLS side, don't you think?
2: Um, yes. However, I think um, if we did that – so let me, let me kind of rewind, and probably my answer may be a little bit long-winded, but – uh, I, I'm going to say something that probably shock your audience, probably shock both of you. Frank de Boer is a fantastic coach and he coaches winning a brand of soccer. The problem is <laughs> you gave him the wrong players, right? And you expected him to coach them in a Dutch style. That's been wildly successful that he was wildly successful.
0: At. So I saw that too, though, in terms of the disconnect between what you would expect from Frank de Boer as a coach, which I was giving him the benefit of the doubt as understanding what he wanted from his system. But then you're seeing, the players brought in that don't fit that equation. So, what was the disconnect? <laughs> but
1: yeah, why, it, why it, didn't why didn't he change the system, though? Well, right, okay, so, so I get that, that that his system didn't work for those players. That was so painfully obvious, and I would agree with you a million percent. But why didn't he change the system? Because Tata, he's not I don't going think to you know the system. You know, when no, Tata came in, he didn't yes. have the players, and he just adjusted the system to make it work. Yeah, right? and
2: I think the difference is is that, um, you know. If you really step back and you look at Atlanta United and you look at Tata and what they were and what Frank De Boer wanted there wasn't a lot there wasn't is they weren't as dissimilar as it may appear right Tata was a very possession based team and they would counter on you if you look at how Atlanta United scored goals on with Tata there was moments of long stretches of sort of uh, swinging side to side possession Waiting and waiting, and then you would see breaks, right? Yeah. Break out. You can still remember Miggy sprinting up the field, right? So
0: we had some outlier well, games where it was full, full gas on. But, yes, but yeah, in general, like it's easy to forget those games where there was a lot of side to side Simpson episode type of moments.
2: Yeah, and then <laughs> so then you take you take what Deboer style is, which is very similar. It's kind of a hybrid of of. um you know, the the Germans, you know, a little bit more uh, counterattack-based, but heavy Dutch possession, right? And then take that and add the, the other Dutch trait, which is this high-intensity defensive pressure, right? That, I think, was the big disconnect because that is not generally a South American trait, right? Uh, South American teams are high-counterattack. They're not um, – packed in defensive kind of organized teams it's not how the South American game is so when you introduce that kind of style and then on top of that you have these strange signings like a guy that he's a good player like Jack Mulraney where does Jack Mulraney fit into this team or where does um you know Adam John fit in this sense or where does Manuel Castro the, you know it's like they're kind of there but they're not and then you look at you know, obviously losing yeah. Gressel, which Ogeto, is, yeah. is an issue, but, yeah. but you know, Brooks Lemon Brooks Lemon, and Julian Gressel are almost like to like comparison. But when you lost, then you got a guy like, so you have these guys like Jack Mulraney and Emerson Heideman is a great player too, I think. But how do they all fit together when there's so many different styles yet you have, you have a group of players on that team that was sort of uh, is ready to play one way, a small, very small group that can play another way. And then you're bringing in players that are conflicting with both of them. So it was a very confusing time. Um, but to answer the long winded, to answer your question, I, I don't think bringing in, if you're going to bring in an American coach, then you surrender in the sense of you surrender for the future. Atlanta United is not going to do that. Um, they're not, they are trying to win every single year. And I think, um, I think we'll see that, right? So they'll, I think they'll go out to South America and they'll find a coach that suits their um their style. And I think that's the style that, you know, they're probably ready to play. Um, but I, whoever I, was comes, pushing,
1: yeah. I was pushing, I was pushing it outside the box. I, I was pushing them to get Paul Riley, who as a women's coach is a phenomenal coach and people forget that before he was the women's coach and one of the most successful women's coach, he was a coach in the A-League before the MLS existed. And he won the A-League title every single year. Um, he coached men, you know, um, I think it was, he's actually originally English. Um, he's from Liverpool and came up through their youth system. But um, I thought as an outside the box, the guy has been in the United States for forever, you know, since he was 20 something years old um, and, uh, you know, clearly can coach coaches a coach.
0: Well, one, one thing uh, going back to Jeff in terms of, of kind of saying Frank Boer's coaching is, is, is quality. I think it is into the right environment and that environment yes. is in Holland because yes, it, is. That's, and, and, yeah, and, it is, and and the it's. reason the reason is is because his <laughs> communication style and, and Jeff as you know as a coach being able to communicate to each player individually what and, and Tata was not fluent in English but he had the right body language the right like you could just tell like you don't have to be an expert in that even if Frank knows the game and knows how to coach it it was clear that his cultural style of coaching fit Dutch culture and and everything, because you know I I you know grew up with TJ Boot, his family's Dutch. Yes. I, I kind of understand the the yes. culture, and I feel like yeah, he he knew how to communicate to those types of players in, in youth. So his style wasn't that different. His just ability to connect with particularly you know a lot of a lot of Argentinian players um, was the challenge there that uh, didn't come off right.
2: No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's a, you know, it, it it was a bad fit from the start. I am curious how those negotiations went. I do like, to me, I see it as a as a great fit for a club, that really, you know, is a startup. Like, is, you're starting from scratch. He would be a great guy to to sort of help build that club up. But stepping into an environment where you have a team wildly successful, yeah. and then your your solution to that problem is let's change the let's change it. Really,
0: yeah. Yeah,
2: that's like that's like in the middle of the Patriots Super Bowl run. Somebody's like, "Hey, I got an idea. Let's fire Belichick and get a new system, right?" I mean, come on, you know. And that's what we basically did. And um, he was a name. I mean, he is a big name when he was hired. But um, you're, you know, you're right. It's, it's. You give him, he's (laughs) in in Holland. (laughs) He's going to be very successful.
1: Yeah. So you're saying, Jeff, that you're not putting your name in the hat for Atlanta United?
2: I told you, man, I don't like soccer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i only like i i i candidly i i when it comes to soccer I, I have two big things that i love to do i love to watch lagos play i still get so much joy in it um i scream at the screen my i scream at him but i love watching that young man play and i i i think no player deserves a, a better life than him and i love coaching my boys i enjoy watching every minute of it they disappointed me this weekend and i wanted to kill them but I still love watching them play. They make uh, a, okay. they
1: don't awesome. lose very
2: often, Mike, when they, they lost this weekend. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry man. Well, yeah, it's, it's disappointing. Yeah. You know, Dave, <laughs> and Dave I, and I have, I,
0: have, have uh, talked a bit. I, I've, uh, I've had the itch to kind of get into coaching myself. I'm a little scared of the parent communication protocols, that you guys must deal with, but um, I, I'm not. We don't need to go into that. But yeah, let um, go into that. I, I certainly... Oh, it's not
2: a <laughs> <the> big deal. <laughs> it, it really, honestly, you know, uh, I actually think it's. You know, have I had difficult parents over the years? Yeah, but I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, I'm. You know, I've had so many great. You know, I think it's been more of a way more positive experience than I can ever imagine. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely jealous of you guys being able to coach soccer. I truly am because, um, you know, a few summers I, I did um, Ralph Lundy soccer camp um, as, as a coach player uh, for, for Ralph at College of Charleston. And those were some of the best summers that, I mean, truly I can remember. I mean, just being around kids and watching them just enjoy the game is is pretty rewarding. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty awesome to, to see that. So, yeah. Um, I need to figure out a way back into uh getting into coaching and uh been been playing around with the idea during the pandemic here to do some sort of training in the uh, avondale estates area i don't know
1: (laughs) yeah i mean i have to i have to thank jeff because jeff is one of the people who allowed me to get back into coaching or pulled me back into coaching so thank you jeff well i'm a scary
2: judge of talent man (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i surround myself with winning coaches it makes me look good but um no i i think i you know soccer is a funny game and i think the more if, if we just remain patient as 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 americans and uh, especially with atlanta united atlanta, the good thing about atlanta united is is they are trying to win yeah it's a vast difference than some of our other franchises in this town
1: <laughs> you know arthur doesn't Fair play enough. around <laughs> i think on that note mikey dabb's
0: so on uh on on the note of time here Jeff how you doing on, <laughs> how you doing on time do you have, it sound like you may have to join a fantasy draft or
2: something I, I got yeah I'm a little bit late I hope I haven't picked yet but uh yeah I got to let you guys go
1: Yeah yep. hey hey Jeff I just
0: want to say thank you very much um it was awesome you having ha- awesome having you on the show hopefully we can have you in person here in the fire uh, in the basement here for a little bit more relaxing show with less audio, video, trouble to kick things off and um, really appreciate your insights. It was great to see. It's probably been 25 years since we've talked this much. And uh, Yeah, I
2: know. I know. I talk cre- to David all the time, more than I yeah. want to. Well, D- D- Dave's <laughs> a
0: huge fan of yours. I can tell you that. Um, uh, so.
2: Likewise, David, for your audience, David is one of those elite level coaches I talk about. That's why I always lobby for him because if something happens to me he's gonna be taking over one of my teams
1: so. <laughs> well thank you one of them I and thanks for coming to appear on the yeah, podcast. thank you guys we thank you guys
0: all right thanks for listening anybody actually made it this far on the podcast love to hear your feedback on twitter at atl on fire and tell your friends to subscribe we are on itunes google play and really any sort of podcast platform that you're on so do listen again have a good one